Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the eighth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. What will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Maker and our Redeemer. Amen. We're going to look at that gospel reading for today, but first we're just going to grab a quick bit of the immediate context at this point in the Gospel of Mark. Our text for today is just almost exactly halfway through the Gospel of Mark at a pivotal moment in the Gospel of Mark, the pivot beginning just before our reading for today when um, Jesus says to his disciples, so who are people thinking and saying that I am by now? And they told him the truth. There was a lot of buzz buzzing around regarding the answer to that question, but there was not yet a consensus that had emerged. So he said to them, so how about you? You've been with me all along. Who do you think I am by now? And it is Peter of course, who then is the one first to say, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one we've been waiting for to come and save us. At which point in the verse immediately before our text for today, Jesus writes, Mark writes, that Jesus then sternly ordered them to tell no one about him. It's another example of what I told you two weeks ago is a recurring theme or motif in the Gospel of Mark, that theme or motif being uh, what come, some have come to refer to as the messianic secret, referring to the fact that every time we read through the Gospel of Mark and somebody, somebody does seem to figure out who Jesus is, every single time he says to them, don't tell, which I told you last week doesn't mean don't tell ever anybody, but means instead don't tell anybody yet. The reason being that by now centuries and centuries worth of expectations had been heaped upon this Messiah and they were by and large glorious expectations, glorious with the ways and means that the world regards gloriously, which in most cases, I mean, everyone just knew for sure this is how it was going to be. The Messiah, when he came, would lead a gloriously armed army that would gloriously drive the Roman Gentiles and their armies into the sea saving the Jews from slavery to Rome and its empire and in the process making a purious, pure Jewish nation great again. But Jesus, you see, had plans and ways and means to save the Jews 
and their Gentile enemies, and us Gentiles, and our enemies, and all people, and even all creatures, and even according to Scripture, creation itself, save it all from a far deeper and enduring bondage, that being our bondage to sin, and sin's firstborn, which is death. So he again and again did tell those who named him the Messiah to keep that quiet because there were these layers and layers of worldly kinds of glorious messianic expectations that he wanted no part of. Which is evidenced in the second part of this pivotal passage which we heard in our text for today where Jesus says that in fact, him being the Messiah, whom they do now know he is, does not mean the end of the Jews suffering under Rome, but means rather that there is suffering that he personally must suffer, and a death that he personally must die. And Peter, it says, rebuked him, and the Greek word is a harsh word, as in Peter told him to shut the heck up about that kind of defeatist nonsense, as in, didn't you hear what I said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the for crying out loud, Son of God. You didn't come to suffer. You came to end our suffering. At which point, what do you know? Jesus is the one who now rebukes, shuts up Peter, saying behind me, get behind me, Satan. For your mind is not set on divine things, but on worldly things. It's the second time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus says, that Mark says Jesus has an encounter with this one uh, called Satan. Do you remember the first time? This is a worship just last week in Mark chapter 1 where in the wilderness immediately after his baptism um, the encounter had been a longer one, 40 days. But according to Matthew and Luke anyway, who give details that Mark, because Mark remembers in a hurry to get his story to the cross and to tell that story, uh, Mark doesn't take time to give these details. But according to Matthew and Luke, there, there's a, the, the conversation, the temptation with Satan was a variation of kind of the same one. A cross? Jesus Christ? You're the Son of God. You're meant for better things. Come on, Jesus, follow me. And I'll show you how to kick some Roman tail with them suffering and dying, and you worshipped as a god. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that in this text for this week, the conversation between Jesus and Peter slash Satan shows us that from the very beginning, even the church, as represented by Peter, upon whom Jesus said he would build his church, didn't want a Messiah who would turn towards suffering, but rather turn from it to avoid it, and to take us with him away from it. But Jesus in last week's wilderness, and again now in today's text, will have no part of it, and minces no words regarding that. The Son of Man must, he says, has to, he says, suffer and die. For the saving I came to do, he says, won't be, can't be, must not be, instead of suffering and dying, but rather by suffering and dying. It has to be. What's up with that, do you think? Why did he have to die? Well, 2,000 years of theology 
And theologians have been asking and answering that question as well as arguing about the answer to that question almost ever since he died. And the answers, including the Bible's early on answers offered in the book of Romans or the book of Hebrews, for example, but continuing ever since, has taken his insistence, his statement about the necessity of his dying and suffering and theologically turned it into one version or another of what is called a doctrine of the atonement. Someone said they think of atonement as the hyphen at one month. Atonement meaning that somehow in his death we are healed, restored, reunited, made one again in our relationship with God in a way that we weren't before. And doctrine meaning so let's explain exactly how that works. So it turns out, however, there's not just one doctrine that either the church or even scripture land on as the agreed upon and consensus final answer to the question of why exactly it is and how exactly it works that he had to die and that we in that death are therefore given life. Some of the images in the doctrine carry legal overtones. Kind of like a courtroom feel to them or a penal system feel to them. As in we are judged guilty by the legal system, the law, but he then stepped in to serve our sentence. He did the time. He finally even died the death that God's law says all sin must die. And since he did that for us, we are declared innocent and clothed in innocence, we are clothed for heaven. You can kind of hear, hear echoes of that in that last sentence from, uh, from, from Romans for today where he says, um, Jesus, who was handed over to death for our trespasses, was raised for our, our um, justification. He pays the price, our sin legal overtones. I kind of imagine, surely, there's truth in that, I'm sure. Other images in Scripture, like the Gospel of John's prevailing favorite image, is the image of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And that image carries overtones of the old Jewish sacrificial system, in which this perfect righteousness offered unto God, even unto death, somehow now satisfied for all time with the blood of this sacrificial lamb, God's insistence upon righteousness um, from us and for us. And I'm sure there's truth in that, surely. Another image in scripture is the image of his death as a ransom, uh, a ransom being something one pays to free someone, right, who is in bondage, uh, oftentimes against their will, like someone who's been kidnapped. And with the ransom paid, and of course presuming that all who had agreed to the terms of the ransoming now go on to honor the promises of the agreement, the ransomed are then freed. And my, imagine, my imagination imagines that that is surely true as well. Although that said, the question left to be debated and argued about becomes the question, for example, of to whom the ransom was paid. Was it paid to God? Or was it paid to the enslaver, the captor, the kidnapper of sinners, Satan? 
Both actually seem kind of unlikely to me. Um, the latter particularly so, in my opinion, for I'm quite sure that if there's no, there's just no way in hell that Satan would honor his end of any agreement upon agreed upon transaction. He is the great deceiver. Plus, well, it occurs to me if Satan needs to be paid off in order for us to be freed, then who's actually in charge around here anyway? That said, as I said, all of those images are absolutely biblical, and I am sure in some ways, including surely ways that are deeper than I personally can understand, ways that are robed in mystery. Um, I imagine those are all each in their own ways true, but it seems to be they're also all by themselves, on their own, insufficient. And also, therefore, each in their own, by themselves, I think, end up being confusing. I mean, just for example, couldn't God have just pardoned sinners by God's own free will rather than declaring Jesus' death to be bloody necessary for it all? Why was the blood necessary? Why did his suffering and death have to happen? Mark, the earliest gospel, and therefore the first actually to put it down in writing, offers literally no comment to that in this text. No theological reflection. No doctrine of the atonement. He just says that that's what Jesus said. It was necessary, he said. He had to, he said. The Son of Man must, he said, suffer and die. So who musted him? Why did his suffering and death happen? Who demanded, insisted upon it? Who says, who said, there's no other way? God? I may be dancing with heresy here, but you know, what are you going to do, fire me? <laughs> I want to suggest that the answer is yes and no. The must that I believe God did give him was a must that God couldn't but give, that being the must, the necessity of love. For God, according to Scripture, is love. And therefore, every imperative there is that is of God is by definition of love. But here is what the loving wisdom of God knows. You don't defeat the ways of not God, which is to say the ways of fear and hate, which is to say the ways of the world, which is to say the ways which ever since the beginning have found it oh so much more tasty not to love, which is to say sin. You don't defeat any of that by using the world's fearful and hateful and self-serving ways and means. Rather, if you are love and you are God, you know that you will defeat the way of sin, the way of Satan, and also the way of all of our demons by being God, which again by definition is to say by being love. And it being love fighting that fight, it being love coming to do the saving of sinners, Jesus' death would be necessary, not because God demands it, God's only imperative is to love but because sin will demand it.
For sin hates love. Knowing that love, if it has its way around here, will be the death of it. God's imperative always is the imperative, the must of love. And knowing full well what the stakes are, that is to say, knowing who and what the enemy is, Jesus and the Father will then agree that he must die. For the only way in the end to avoid it would either to be to turn in the direction of hate or fear or self-serving apathy. And love will do no such thing. And knowing too what the stakes are, that is to say knowing too who and what their enemy is, the world in the form of the power-hungry alliance of church and state will join unholy hands to agree, to insist that he die, lest he be the death of them. So who in the end was it who would insist that he die, who would declare that it must be? The answer, albeit for various reasons, is everyone. Heaven and hell, church and state, righteousness and sin, you and I and all sinners who would all in their own ways, all in our own ways demand it. That will be evidenced in Mark chapter 15 when it will not be God or the religiously powerful or the politically powerful, but the people who will shout the demand, crucify him. And people being the people they are, it's not hard to imagine that at least a fickle few of them, maybe the whole fickle lot of them, had only five days earlier been among those shouting Hosanna to the king and his coming kingdom. Only two parties in the agreement that he must die, however, not church and state, and not Peter either, at least not yet. Peter later, yes, but not yet. But only two parties in the agreement, the Father and the Son, knew that his death would not be the end of him, but would rather become part of the plan. For remember what he said, it is necessary for the Son of Man to undergo great suffering, necessary to be rejected, necessary to be killed, but then too, on the third day, on the other side of the suffering and death, to rise again. Love, in other words, not hate. Life, not death. Light, not darkness. Sacrifice, not coercion. Righteousness, not depravity. Servanthood, not bullying. Mercy, not mastery. Forgiveness of sin, not enslavement of sinners. Would and will win. And it would and will do so the only way the victory could be won. By loving. Loving the world, loving sinners, loving you to death and hell and back. So, so according to him, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Which is to say, since he's the one saying it, to love and to do so even when it is costly 
And to do so not because of what you will get for it, but because of what can be done, what can be accomplished, the victories that can be won only by love. Amen.